You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Ayla. Ayla is a writer and a um, performer on OnlyFans. Um, and has been a guest on a number of other podcasts. And I will link to her blog, which is called Knowing Less, and some of her other writings and her Twitter account in the show notes. And she is also the creator of a game called Ask Hole, which is a, a set of, um, a, a set of playing cards that pose difficult, interesting and controversial questions. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the game later. I I actually would really like to buy a set of the cards. I'm very intrigued by the game. But, um, well, yeah. welcome, Ayla. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, unfortunately, Askel is out of stock right now. We're switching uh, distributors. But one day it will be possible. One day soon, I'm sure. <laughs> um, first of all, I gather that you come from a very religious background, a Calvinist um, background, is that correct? An evangelical Christian uh, background, and you were homeschooled by your parents. Ah, uh, yes, I was. So, first of all, I wanted to know how you, when and how um, you left the church, whether that was whether that was a, a more sudden thing or a longer process and basically what happened because it's been quite a journey from um, evangelical Christian to rationalist and um, controversial thinker and OnlyFans performer. So when did you begin to have doubts about your, the, um, the Christi- Christianity? Um, I had sort of had doubts all through it. But the thing was, um, the, the manner in which I was raised really embraced doubts. We were told that doubt was good, um, that we were supposed to have an actually questioned faith that stood up to scrutiny. So they're like, well, if you think that maybe something like isn't quite right, like, yeah, let's go, let's go look at that, you know, um, under, with the sort of implicit understanding that once we looked at it deeply enough that we would come to the inevitable conclusion that, you know, Christianity was correct in a whole bunch of ways. Um, but, but we still, I was still encouraged to doubt. So I did have a lot of doubts uh, throughout my teenage years of varying degrees. Um, and I was exposed to a lot of um, attacks on the Christian faith uh, because this is what my dad did professionally. Uh, he went around and debated people who would attack the Christian faith. And so I was very familiar with a lot of the discourse around this, the, the theology and like the facts and whatever. And when I, I was, I lost my faith right before I turned 19. Um, when I ran into a problem that I hadn't heard before, it was like a theological question about like the consistency of God's morality across the Old and New Testament. And the, the question itself isn't that interesting, like Christians have a response for it, but the important thing about it was that it 
I hadn't heard the answer before. And so for the first time, it sort of allowed me to think like, wait a second, like maybe, maybe this actually isn't true because it actually made me confused. Like, and not in like the safe way that my family had encouraged. It was like, whoa, that's a big question. And at the time I had recently moved out and was living um, among a non-religious area. Like I had, I was attempting to go to college at the time. So all the people around me were not religious. And so I think that also really helped me emotionally become more prepared to accept that. And uh, that's how I lost my faith. And it was pretty freaky for a while. And what happened after that once you, you said, so in an interview that I was listening to that you gave to Justin Murphy, um, you said that it, that your family had had this plan for you, which you had, which you had also sort of mentally agreed to initially that you were going to be a housewife and mother. And after you left the faith, obviously all of that was overturned. So what happened next? What did you decide to do and, and why? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the housewife and mother thing was absolutely true. And like, as mentioned, homeschooled and we didn't really have access to normal media that was uncensored. So like, I didn't really have a strong idea that I might be something other than a housewife and mother. That was just like the way the world worked. Right. And so after I, you know, got into the secular world in the outside, um, I really didn't know what I wanted. I, I knew I wasn't Christian and that, sort of made everything sort of confusing. Like I had to learn everything from first principles in a way. Um, and it was kind of an inelegant mishmash of different aspects of my life that I slowly like had to deal with one at a time. And I knew that I didn't want to become a wife or mother uh, right away. Um, uh, that was like, I didn't know a lot more, but I did know that having sex was okay. Because that was like one of the things that I decided to discard from Christianity. And so I started having just a whole bunch of casual sex with people um, because it was sort of like if, if my prior way of interacting with the world had suddenly been cut off, I was like, I didn't really have the, 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 the thing that other people had that they had picked up from like high school and movies they'd watched about how sex is supposed to work. So I sort of went about it like a newborn autist in a way. What do you mean like a like a newborn autist? Newborn in the sense that I didn't have norms. Everything was very new and I was sort of rediscovering it independent of culture, to, I mean, to some degree. And the, the autist in the sense that I was extremely rigid in my thinking and feeling. I didn't like having emotions. I decided to be like very in control of my mind. Um, and so I didn't really f- like feel out relationships with people. I sort of like decided that I was horny and that if other people were also horny, we must in fact have sex because that is what makes sense, right? Um, so I would like, <laughs> I, I initiated multiple uh, sexual interactions by asking if people would like to engage in coitus. And it was just, it was very uh, <laughs> sort of methodical and a little bit mechanical. Uh, so this is what I mean by a uh, newborn autist. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And then you you um, you started doing cam girling. That is correct. Um, I had I tried doing normal jobs because I, I, I tried to go to college, but I didn't have enough money, so I dropped out after a couple months, and then worked at a factory, um, and then eventually quit that and like tried to make my own business, which I was completely inept at, had no experience, and I lived in Idaho, so uh, it did not go well. And then a friend of, or somebody I was dating 
told me that we should try camming and we never ended up trying it. But after we broke up, I was like, all right, well, I really need money. My savings are running out. Um, I was sleeping on a friend's couch at the time. And so I tried camming and it was really nerve wracking, but I did very well the first night for, you know, relative to what I had been making before. And then I I just threw myself into that because I saw an opportunity. I was like, oh, wait, this is actually something I am in control of that I can put effort into and figure out how to become better and make money. And then I became obsessed with doing better. And that's how the whole thing started. And so I gather you were very high earning um, cam girl, but the, the earnings in that branch are extremely precarious because um, they're very largely dependent on uh, single single clients who pay you huge amounts of money, so-called whale clients. Tell me more about the differences between the cam girling experience and, and OnlyFans, which you are now doing. Yeah, you've definitely done your research. That is extremely true. Um, camming is much more dependent on an individual number because uh, camming is live. If if anybody listening doesn't know what this is, it's you live stream your webcam and then there's a chat on the sidebar. Um, there's a couple of different ways this is constructed, constructed, but very commonly anybody can join the chat, watch you, and then they can tip for you to do things. The people in the room get to know each other. It becomes a little bit like a community, kind of similar to a Twitch stream. And this sort of fosters competition among the men. Like the men see each other uh, tipping and then like the one that rises to the top, the one that like pays the most money, you know, gets the most attention and the most rewards and everybody can sort of see that. And so this sort of uh, makes a like a divide in most people like aren't willing to put in the amount of money required to visibly hit the top, the top dog status. So you get like a couple like very wealthy people who sort of end up becoming the girls regulars. Um, I think I, I vaguely remember doing a survey years ago when I was a cam girl and it did turn out that like this was pretty common for most girls. Almost all girls had most of their income coming from under three people. Uh, which is extremely scary because if one of them decides to drop out or if you piss one of them off, you know, your income is really fucked. Um, it's really based on luck on who happens to to find you, like which wealthy people happen to find you. And it's very stressful. And OnlyFans completely does away with this dynamic, which uh, if you had asked me before OnlyFans came out, if this was like a smart idea, I would have said no. And I think I would have been very wrong. Uh, OnlyFans removes the competitive dynamic uh, pretty intentionally. When you sign up for a girl's page, you are pretty much isolated from the rest of the men on the page there with you. So you get more of the feeling that it's just you and that girl. Um, the girls very often will hide their subscriber count or even the v likes visible. So you can't even see how many other people she's interacting with as well. Uh, and so this is much more like intimate thing. And so you can get like her, you know, quote unquote, oh. attention. Um, for a much lower price. And this is way scalable. So you can't actually see the other people's comments and things on the OnlyFans site. Uh, they recently removed that, yeah. Yeah, I, I heard that from someone else also. So you, it, you would have the, the experience would be as if you were um, the person's only follower. It might look that way to you. Correct. So I wouldn't see anybody else's comments and interactions. Right. It's a very solo experience. And then a lot of your interactions with her come through DMs. Can you tell me, as somebody who has never been on any OnlyFans sites, has never actually seen OnlyFans, um, and I've just heard descriptions from, there is an artist who I follow on Twitter who has been supplementing her income with, with OnlyFans. 
um, I think she's she's making quite a lot of money and has decided to be doing this, that she wants to do this temporarily to make a lump sum and then retire from OnlyFans. Um, I'm afraid I have just her name has completely escaped me right now, but I will I will put I will put it in the in the show notes so people can go to her Twitter and and um see what she says there. But that is my only the only thing I know about OnlyFans is that is uh what she has told people publicly in her Twitter account. I've never actually seen an account. And um what I would like to know, especially since you are um, a very high earner on OnlyFans is what exactly it looks like, and why would um, why would a person choose to um, go to OnlyFans rather than to, for example, watch free pornography online? Um, from the user side, OnlyFans is kind of similar to Facebook, except imagine there's no other friends. You get to subscribe to one or more people. Typically, it's like five or so girls, I think, is something close to the average. And so you can log on to OnlyFans and scroll through your feed and you see posts, kind of like Instagram, Facebook, you know, typical feed of um, nudes or whatever they they want to sell you. Um, Some of them, depending on the kind of account you subscribe to, are locked posts. So typically, they'll have some sort of teaser. And then if you you can click on it and then pay a little bit of money and then get to see what's locked underneath, which is usually a little bit more explicit. Um, You can also go to any one of these girls uh, and message them directly in the DMs. And sometimes they'll talk to you. Sometimes they won't, depending on how big the account is or what their style is like. And likely you will be getting a semi-regular messages in DMs from them containing videos that they are asking you to unlock. Um, sometimes they might like do things like dick ratings or sexting. There's also the possibility for just audio recordings being sent. Um, and that is mostly, that's mostly, I just described like 90% of OnlyFans from the user perspective right there. Um, what was the other, oh yeah, why do people go to OnlyFans as opposed to watching porn. Yeah. Uh, So the OnlyFans versus porn thing. For one, a lot of people still only watch porn. Porn is still really big. A lot of people don't find OnlyFans to be appealing. Um, But there is a pretty substantial segment of the population that uh, really likes meaning attached to the porn. Um, Like they're talking to a real person, which really falls in line with everything that I've experienced during sex work. Like if the more that you can attach to the sexual experience, like an emotional convincingness, a story, a personality, uh, like a scenario that really bumps up the amount that people enjoy it. Like I think men really are craving this level of kind of connection with the individual as opposed to sort of this dehumanized uh porn that you watch from afar at least a segment of the population is into that and with only fans you can get that it's a little bit closer to an actual experience with a real life person who is paying attention to you as an individual and that is really big seller people really enjoy feeling that to feel special to be feel valued to feel like their sex drive specifically is the thing that is interacting with the porn star or even the girl next door that that they really enjoy, and it's a huge, it's a huge money market, big seller. Uh, but that that's the primary difference why why people would like to participate in OnlyFans. Also, you get a customized pornography. If you have a specific weird thing you're really into, you can go ask a girl to make it for relatively cheap. So I have heard some people criticizing OnlyFans because they feel that it is. Um, 
exploitative of the um, of the customers because um, it gives them the impression of uh, that somebody cares about them, whereas in fact, of course, it's a financial transaction. I don't think the fact that it's a financial transaction necessarily rules out caring. So you gave the example, I think it was you who, or maybe you just retweeted the example of that um, people also go to counselors and uh, psychologists and psychiatrists to talk about their problems. And um, psychiatrists often charge a lot of money and nevertheless people feel understood and cared about, despite the fact that there a monetary transaction is happening. So um, I'm not sure how, um, I mean, I think that people tend to lose their heads where sex comes into the picture and tend to see things that involve sex as somehow not analogous to, this, to similar things that don't involve sex. So they are um, I have noticed that a lot of people are very troubled by the idea of OnlyFans because they feel it is somehow deceitful um, and that the customers believe they are getting a, a girlfriend uh, when they aren't actually, and that that might in fact even stop them from finding a real-life girlfriend. Uh, what What is your feeling about that? Um, I think that this occasionally happens and is not nearly as off as common as people think it is um yeah there is sort of like a veneer of intimacy in very similar way to therapy where you come in and the therapist is like wow tell me about that like they're probably not actually curious i mean some of them might be but but like this is obviously an incentivized question and in a very similar way like this is a lot of only fans and i think that is generally fine because both parties are kind of aware what's going on. Like the, the customer knows that this is only happening because they're being paid. Um, and I think that like a more relationship style experience is not very common. Um, relationship style experiences, which involve like, for example, uh, the extreme end would be if the customer texts the girl, he has her phone number, they maybe they talk on the phone, possibly he tells her about her day and, and she like responds. And this is sort of divorced from, uh, monetary transactions even though like at least on its surface although under like usually this happens with a cam girl's top tipper for example like if somebody's paying her rent she might put a lot of extra time to talk to him and so stuff like this starts to get away into the veneer like away from the veneer and a little bit more i think i don't really like ethical framing but like you might call it unethical uh as in she might be actually deceiving him into thinking he might have more of a chance than he does and this does happen, but I also think it's not common. This is like a rare thing and usually happens with only extremely high payers. And the vast majority of people on OnlyFans do not pay that much. Um, it's even it's less common on OnlyFans than it is with camming, I would say. With OnlyFans, like most of your income is like much closer together in the sense that, sorry, like everybody pays, you know, $50 or something as opposed to camming where one person pays like $2,000. So it's, I would say it's less of a risk in OnlyFans, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a rundown of the work that you put into maintaining your OnlyFans account? Like give me a typical sort of day or week. Um, how much do you post? Um, what you do, what what 
what kind of research does it entail? Um, how does it feel compared to just posting on, say, Twitter or Facebook? Um, yeah, can you give me some some of the kind of practical nitty gritty of of what you do on your OnlyFans? If what of if you had to give a more detailed kind of job description of that side of your life? I know it's not your all of your life, but um, yeah. Um, so my work has changed over. I've been doing OnlyFans for coming up on a year now. And it's definitely changed over that time. So in like last summer, I was working extremely hard. And lately, I have dropped the ball quite a bit. I actually made my lowest amount uh, in February. Um, then I have this whole year uh, or the whole, all, all, since almost when I started uh, because I'm lazy. But uh, basically, let's assume that I'm like actually being productive. And this would look something like um, I put on makeup in the mornings, I go take some photos. Typically I try and get two good photos um, that I can post as advertising and one good video that I can post as advertising. And then a whole bunch of the other photos that I take that might not be like quite as, you know, punchy, uh, I will schedule them to my OnlyFans or post them immediately. Um, and this means that they post to the feed. I currently have two OnlyFans accounts. One of them is cheap and one of them is expensive. To the expensive one, I post twice a day. And to the cheap one, I post once a day. Um, and I post more graphic or titillating content to my more expensive OnlyFans. Um, and so I'll put like a like a little tagline uh, and then I post it. And that is really good. Um, I check my DMs throughout the day and respond, but typically at night um, to my OnlyFans. Um, and then most of the actual work goes into advertising. It's off OnlyFans, uh, because OnlyFans has a, an approximately 50% churn rate. So every month, uh, 50% of your subscribers will be gone. So most of what I do focuses on bringing in new customers. And this typically for me is done on Reddit. So, uh, I will po usually post, um, during the peak, I was posting about eight unique photos to eight different subreddits every day. Um, lately it's dropped a bit more cause I've, I'm actually like working on a project to help me schedule that, um, better. And so I haven't, I haven't actually been doing the scheduling itself. Um, but yeah, so like I post on uh, Twitter, on Instagram, um, Snapchat, sometimes Tumblr, <laughs> Uh, I, I haven't been uh, focusing on the advertising quite so hard because it's been a little bit more passive now that I've gotten enough posts to be top of all time on various subreddits. Uh, so now I sort of have this constant below stream trickling in, which allows me to relax a little bit more. Um, but it's still not quite as much as I would like. So, uh, But that, that would be most of what I do. And I occasionally film pornos. Um, I will film a video of me like masturbating graphically or whatever. And then I will send it out typically to my VIP um, page for a cheaper price and then uh, put it into small chunks and sell it to my uh, cheaper page for a higher price. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's mostly what the nitty gritty is like. Yeah. Mm. Do you put out any verbal content or is it all, is it all videos and, and pictures? I mean, do you ever talk to your fans or, or write things? write posts. Yeah. As occasionally I do live streams. I forgot to mention that. And sometimes I do videos of me just straight talking to the camera, like explaining something that's going on in my life or something I've been thinking about or like any troubles I've been having. Uh, 
I typically do it verbally instead of through text because people that feels more intimate. Like if I can write something out, that's, you know, anybody can read my writing online and it doesn't feel like it's connected to my physical body. But any sort of communication that's connected to my physical body is is usually much better. So I try and do videos of me talking as opposed to writing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I I don't I I mean I don't mean this to sound any way insulting because you're a very you're obviously a, you're a very beautiful young woman, um, but um, also I wonder whether um, whether there's something beyond that that is that is the reason for your um, specific success on OnlyFans um, because you know beautiful young women are a dime a dozen and um, uh, nevertheless you you seem to be especially successful so I wonder whether um, to what extent do you think do you think people are just attracted to your looks or do you think there is also a kind of um, personality character sort of style that they are um, that sells well or that that appeals to people yeah, absolutely. I think personality is really important. Um, it's co- sort of a modifier on your appearance. Um, like you take your appearance as like sort of some baseline and then you get to multiply that by like however, you know, funny you are or something. Um, for me, it's a goofy uh, because I got my start in sex work like coming out of homeschooling and I had no idea how to be feminine it was a really big thing. Like, like I didn't know what flirting was or how to, you know, the sense of seduction or feminine charm like this was completely foreign to me and so I was an awkward train wreck when I first started sex work I was like extremely hyperactive because I was confused and uncomfortable and goofy and just did like the really weird creative things that people just were not used to seeing in sex work because like who the fucking sex work comes out of being an isolated homeschooler in a cult right the near cult um so I I was really strange (laughs) and I've toned down a lot since then. I I am much lower energy. I speak slower. I use simpler language. I figured out that they like smiling a lot. So is I'm currently sort of this blend of the 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 old school, very goofy. Like I was a mime online for a long time. I mean, I still kind of do that. Uh, combined with like this the seduction that I had to very consciously learn. And so the goofy part is really important. Like for example, um, right now, like I was referring to passive subscribers from Reddit from posts that rank really high. And on the biggest not safer work subreddit that allows sellers, r slash real girls, I have the top post of all time there, uh, featuring myself molesting myself as a mime through a jacket. Uh like like pretending that the jacket is another person and it's quite convincing and then it's like kind of sexy. And that is that did really well and that brought in a whole bunch of people. So anything that showcases sort of this unique creative skill that like is also erotic uh, has done super well for me and I think is really um, useful for getting people in. Um, I don't think that my writing or my tweets... <laughs> By like polls or controversial statements or like any of the intellectual stuff um, brings men in almost at all. I would say it's a very negligible percentage of like men who like me for my personality. Uh, Men just don't really find that sort of like highly disagreeable sort of intellectual kind of engagement to be sexy. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting Um, because I find that quite sexy in men. 
that sort of semi Aspergery, um, very um, <laughs> argumentative, ultra rational thing. I find that quite attractive often in men. Um, but you think men don't find it attractive in women, or or not the kind of men who want to subscribe I'm sure to some OnlyFans, maybe. Mm, mm. Yeah, but it's a. I think it's a negligible percentage compared to the general population. So I'm quite intrigued by two, I guess, separate strands of your thought that I've noticed on Twitter. Um, I'm staying with a with a topic of sex work because that's what most interests me, I guess, um, right now. And I tend to have just one really one topic that I focus on with each interviewee. So I hope that's okay. I don't mean to imply that this is the totality of your life. Yeah. And I will link to your other work and I do encourage um, people to read it. And because, I mean, I think I've watched porn twice in my life and I've never been on OnlyFans. So I'm certainly not my, I'm certainly not interested in you from that perspective, but I find you an unusually, um, articulate commentator on this subject, uh, which t- is really alien to me. <laughs> like, like I landed on the moon um, in some distant or in some distant galaxy. Um, and I want to know what conditions are in this planet. So um, two things that you said, uh, two sort of separate things that you said that I think I would like you to explore or try to reconcile. And one is that you um, tweeted that being a prostitute, being a prostitute was the best job I ever had. Um, but the other thing you said was that there are, you feel there, there are dark sides to sex work, but that you prefer not to talk about them or you, or, or you feel you're wary of talking about them because so many people are anti-sex work to begin with. And they will take the idea that there are, that there are these negative trade-offs and dark sides as a kind of com- complete condemnation. And that's not how you mean it. You mean it as a, as a kind of qualifier. Could you say more about that? Was that a clear enough question or should I, should I reframe it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so prostitution was the best job that I ever had. Um, I, I like OnlyFans better because it pays me more. But if you had to remove the money from the equation, I really enjoyed the in-person work because it felt the most humanizing and compassionate out of all of them. It was not asymmetrical at all. Um, and yeah, sometimes I do feel hesitant talking about the negative sides of sex work a bit, mainly because like I'm wary of people focusing that I said like a negative thing and then ignoring all the positives because it is like a really complicated nuanced topic that is very charged in society and also is super different for everybody who tries it. Like both the clients and the girls who work, um, very different experiences. Some are really good, some are really bad. And there's a lot of uh, incentive, particularly religious incentive, to to put a more negative spin on this than I think is warranted. Um, but there are actual negatives. So there is like a grain of truth in in the things that the critics are trying to say. Um, and it is like, can be very exhausting. It can be unsafe depending on how you go about it. Um, it occasionally makes me feel really angry at all men. Like it makes, it gives me, uh, like resentment towards being objectified sometimes. 
Um, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I really like it. Sometimes it like boosts my self-esteem in ways that are really good and healthy and therapeutic for me. And other times I feel really frustrated that the things that make me money are so like disconnected from the kinds of output that I find that are take the most skill and effort. Like I can put so much work into uh, you know, a blog post or, or some piece of art or something, and it gets a fraction of the attention and income that if I post a photo of my breasts. And I am grateful to have the opportunity to post a photo of my breasts. Like it makes me money and I can live my life more the way I want it and save it for retirement. And I'm so grateful, but also like it is pretty disheartening. And it also gives me a lot of sympathy for men. Like how it must be crazy to be a man and to work so hard and to see somebody like me, for example, have to do relatively so little and make so much. Um, I really empathize with the resentment this might also create in men. So it is it is a really complicated topic. Uh, exploitation is a thing that occasionally happens, um, and it can kind of emotionally damage people on both sides if you're not careful. Uh, so this is this is true, and the critics who say this are also correct. Um, I just find them uh, to not be holistic in the sense that there are also incredibly wonderful things about sex work that are vital in some ways. And I don't want us to lose sight of that either. In my opinion, it's worth it. When you talked about it being compassionate, um, could you maybe give an anecdotal example or two? Yeah. Um, I, I, I saw a quadriplegic at one point, which felt really good because he, there's no way he was going to be able to have sex with a woman normally. And so it felt really good for me to be able to help him. Mm. Um, there's also another guy who I've, I've talked about before elsewhere, um, but who primarily would just be with me and cry and I would cry with him. And he just wanted skin to skin contact um, to be like intimate with somebody to witness him in such like a vulnerable and sad moment. And I was really there for, it felt like therapy. Uh, we didn't really talk, but like the sort of emotional grief that he was going through felt super meaningful for me to be able to help him with that and to be able to be so like vulnerable, literally, <laughs> like I was literally like naked and sometimes we would have sex and that was like so much for him to process. Um, and I w I'm glad that I had the space to be able to do that. I think it was really good for him and really meaningful for me. And I don't know, it feels like whole, like wholesome. <laughs> it feels like I was just helping someone. <laughs> and I love that. And there's like measurable, there, no, there are literally measurable. I did actually measure them um, by tracking them in a spreadsheet. But there's there were a lot of other men who who I felt really grateful to be able to be that in their lives, to be like guy was dying of cancer. Um, I recently found out that one of my clients that I saw before COVID passed away from cancer. Um, and, and they were like, I don't want to, to die without having the warmth of a woman because my wife won't have sex with me. Um, it was like stuff like that. Or like some, sometimes a woman would hire me for her husband. Uh, and we would have a threesome. That was really fun. Like I was, I like being a birthday gift. <laughs> I know there were, there were a lot of just really fun and touching and meaningful moments in there that I, I am, do not regret even a little bit. That's so interesting. Um, so tell me more about the dark side. 
um, what you see as the dark side of sex work generally, and also perhaps specifically of OnlyFans. Um, I'm intrigued as to what you what you feel those dark sides are. Yeah, well, the most obvious one I would say is uh, safety. I do think that sex work largely is more safe than people perceive it to be based on stereotypes, especially if you are like halfway smart and take basic precautions. Um, but regardless, you, it is still a little bit risky just as being any sort of public figure is a little bit risky. Um, I have a stalker who does not make my life very fun. Other people have stalkers. Like I have a friend who she bought a house and she was super careful with it, buying it in privacy wise. She like did it anonymous, somehow like managed to keep her name off public records or something like that. Um, Oh, wait, no, she didn't. She she was very careful about it, but she kept her name on public record, something like this. Anyway, she took a photo in her house with the background of the house in the photo, just like a normal selfie. And somebody mm-hmm. um, managed to comb through all of the listings of recently sold houses in her very general region until they found an internal photo that matched the photo in the selfie. And then that, that was then they knew where she lived. And that was terrifying. Um, I, another girl like had a guy convinced that they were in love and flew out to meet her and left his wife, which is all without her, her consent in that. She was just like, whoa, dude, that's not what I wanted. So occasionally you get uh, really deranged stalkers who make your life not fun. And that really sucks. And it's hard to avoid. Um, yeah, there's no way around it, really. Uh, there's also like the emotional burden of feeling not attractive enough or like the competition with women who are hotter than you. Uh, This has been like a constant struggle. When I was a cam girl, I did a competition with another girl who made more money than me for less work. And that was really a blow to my self-esteem. And that also sort of made me resentful. Like I feel like, well, if I just looked prettier, then guys wouldn't care what I did and I would, they would just give me more money, but I have to labor like twice as hard in order to make what a really attractive woman does by just basically farting. And that made me feel really bad about the way that I looked. I felt like really unable to achieve the sort of income levels that I wanted. And I still feel that. Like often I will look at photos of beautiful women and be like, man, if I looked like that, I know how much money I would make. That's like that face is worth, you know, $200,000 a month or that faith is worse. That face is worth like $100,000 a month for like X amount of hours put in. And so that's like a punch to the gut every time you get explicitly measured on campsites. Often they will rank you by the amount of people you have in your room or the amount of money you make on average. And so you basically get an explicit ranking of how hot you are. Uh, you know, it's modified by a few other things, but like if you go to any campsite and you look at the first, you know, five girls, they're going to be really attractive. And that's not an accident. It's not like they worked for that. Um, and so that sucks. It's, it's really hard to deal with. Um, and sometimes it feels it's it feels bad for like the customers too. For, it feels bad for me for the customers. This is more true, I think, on campsites. But sometimes it does feel like you're ex- exploiting people. Like they're paying you so much money for something that you didn't really do, and you're like, "Am I? Should I be taking this much money from this person?" And very often, uh, girls won't. It's pretty common for there to be like sort of individual ethical standards for girls. Like a lot of girls have a policy where if they find out that you are, if if a client is damaging his life at all, if he mentions like, "Yeah, I withdrew money from uh, my kid's college fund," then then you're not you cut him off. Then you're like, "Okay, you can no longer be." 
uh, my client. Um, but often it's a pretty fuzzy gray area and often girls don't really follow that. And you have to be aware. You have to like keep an eye on men and make sure that they're not hurting themselves by giving you money. This is much more common in camming, I think. People in general give you less amounts of large money or fewer people give you large money on OnlyFans than on camming. Uh, sorry. Yeah, that's, that is correct. I got that mixed up in my head. Um, specifically with OnlyFans, probably the dark side would be the way that it's changing the internet, I would say. Um, as I mentioned, there's a 50% churn through subscribers, which means you have to advertise, which means that a whole bunch of girls are advertising everywhere they can on the internet, which is uh, changing the way that online communities are having to deal with this. Like Reddit uh, subreddits, many of them have banned sellers. Uh, lots of people ban sellers even if they aren't selling. So like, if you just post in a subreddit and you're an OnlyFans girl, often they will ban you. Uh, because they anticipate that you might be selling. Um, FetLife recently removed links from photos that you can post, uh, which is pretty big. Like FetLife doesn't often make updates in response to things. Um, same with, I think, Instagram. Like the prices for promo on Instagram have skyrocketed since OnlyFans uh, happened. So it's, it's just basically changing the marketing market outside of OnlyFans. Um, but that was, I would say, would be the worst downside for specifically OnlyFans as the medium. Uh, the rest of the downsides are pretty uh, generalizable to most of sex work. Yeah. So I recently heard somebody making a, um, the argument that there is this expectation um, that employers will not have to pay you as much because you could you can supplement your income by using your car to be an Uber driver, renting out your spare bedroom for Airbnb, I guess in post, pre and hopefully post pandemic times, and um, and selling your nude photos on OnlyFans. Um, and it's a kind of, it's part of the precarization, precarization, I don't think that's a word, but the the growth of this precarious, um, gig economy, which is basically a, a subscriber model economy rather than an rather than an, um, a fixed earnings model, which is much more anxiety provoking if you're dependent on subscribers because you you don't know from month to month how much money you're going to be earning, especially as you said because there's an enormous turnover. Um, how do you feel about the economic side of that, the kind of socioeconomic side of that? I don't see why mar like supply forces of supply and demand wouldn't sort of do their thing here. Like if people do need their jobs less, then they might be more likely to quit their job. Um, if an employer can afford to pay their employees less and still have the employees want to work there, then that seems also okay. Uh, I, I don't. Right. really see like the gig economy hurting things um but also i'm not like super deep into economics and i don't have very good thoughts on this specifically but i don't feel particularly worried as long as people have freedom to pursue the best options available to them specifically um usually i just assume if you have that then things will kind of work out on a large scale i want to ask you whether um your sex work or cam girling or OnlyFans work, any or all, um, affect how affect your 
relationships, your non-professional sexual and romantic relationships. I know that you are polyamorous. And and also kind of, I guess, how you approach relationships, uh, whether, whether you've encountered problems with uh, code switching, in a sense, from sex work sex to relationship sex, whether you think there is a difference there, and also whether you've encountered hostility from romantic partners because of your work. Um, I have never encountered hostility from romantic partners because of my work. Um, that I, I generally don't end up dating somebody who would express it. It's like a very early on and very strong filter. If somebody doesn't like what I do, I don't even get close to considering them as a romantic partner. I have occasionally had some people feel like a little bit uncomfortable. Like when I first started doing in-person sex work, um, my kind of partner at the time was a little bit uncomfortable, but said that after seeing me do it and see that like it didn't seem to affect the way that I viewed our sex life or him or anything, um, like it was so compartmentalized for me. Like it was a job. Like very often I would go see a client and then just like completely forget that I had seen, saw, seen them because I just think about other things in my day. And then he'd be like, how'd that thing go? And I'd be like, what thing? And he's like, you know, the, the sex that you had. I'm like, oh, right. I guess I did have sex, huh? But it was, it was like that level. And eventually he, uh, just like real, realized that it wasn't a th- like, it wasn't important for me. Um, and then he stopped being bothered by it. And that was like a, very long time ago, and we never had an issue with it since. Um, I mean, generally trust him to be pretty open. I I tend to be like pretty radical honesty in my relationships. Um, I've never had a problem finding a romantic partner uh, in the terms of like having somebody reject me. Uh, I am extremely picky, and if somebody like rejects me for sex work, then that usually is indicative of a whole bunch of other things that I find very unattractive. So for me personally, I haven't had an issue, but I've also been fortunate to run in circles um, that are pretty sex work accepting, like the rationalist and poly communities. Uh, if you say you're a sex worker, people are like, oh, cool. Like my, my friend does this or my roommate or like, oh yeah, my girlfriend does that. Like it's just so normalized that I don't, I've just ceased thinking about it as being a relevant thing to my dating life. Um, so it's, it's always like very slightly surprising to me when people like ask if it impacts my dating life. I'm like, what do you, oh, right. I guess that does impact dating life for some people, huh? Uh, but I do realize that outside of my little bubble, it is a lot harder, especially for people in more conservative communities um, who have like more traditional out- outlooks, especially people who are very monogamous, um, which is a lot of the population. Um and what was, I forget what the other things that you asked for. Did I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I asked you, um, I asked you about whether you think, whether you, there is a difference in your mind, um, between the sex that you have in a relationship and the sex you have during sex work and whether you ever feel like there are difficulties in code switching. Um, so I, I should say as a little anecdotal aside, this is an N equals one example. So I don't mean to imply that this is something that happens to all or most people, but I have a friend who is, who was a sex worker and, um, who continues to have many problems because, um, of, because of associating sex with the experiences of sex work and being unable, feeling unable to kind of be present in the moment um, with a romantic partner. Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. 
Um, that hasn't happened to me as far as I know, um, but I could see it happening. I, I, I tend to be very good at compartmentalization. I've always have been from like an extremely early age. I remember uh, my parents being shocked at how I could be so shy and yet be so uh, open and active with uh, performing on stage. Um, for me, that was a very clear compartmentalization thing. I was like, oh, if I am on stage, then I behave like this. And I'm, if I'm not, I'm totally different. And the same thing happens for me in most aspects of life, including sex work. And so for me, when I go do sex work, it is completely different. I cannot do sex work with people who are from my personal life. I've had some people ask because that like confuses the compartments too much. Um, and I also bring almost none of it back. I, I would say maybe one thing that I have noticed is that I've become more selfish in my personal life. I think I've carried like a little bit of pretty rational, I admit this is irrational, uh, resentment towards uh, clients because in our sexual interactions, I am supposed to be doing all of the pleasing. Like I don't really try and ask for anything that I like. If they want a blowjob, I give them a blowjob. If they want me to ride cowgirl on them until my thighs are sore, like that's what I do. Like it's not about my pleasure, really. Even when it looks like it's about my pleasure, you know, it's only in service of their pleasure. Like I look like I'm having a good time because that makes them feel like they're having a good time. And so it's just so not my pleasure focused. And I think even though I know I'm getting paid for it, even though consciously I know it makes no sense to be bitter about this thing that is a consensual adult transaction and I know exactly what I'm getting into, I still have a little part of me that feels angry. Like, wait, I want to be taken care of. Like, I want somebody to put in a lot of effort to make me feel good because they want me to feel good and not because, you know, I'm being paid or whatever. Um, and so that has spilled over a bit into my personal life, which I has unclear consequences at this point because I've been having so little personal sex due to COVID. Uh, I don't really know how that's going to end up working out, but I mean, maybe being selfish in my personal life is good. I feel like I have much less tolerance now for doing stuff that I'm like not super into. If I don't want to ride cowgirl because my thighs get sore, then fuck it. I'm just like not going to do that. If you want that, go pay a prostitute to do that for you. Um, but, but so far, that has been the um, only real impact. Um, for me, personally, it's very easy to either be a sex worker or to not be a sex worker. And that difference is extremely clear. Hmm. And do you feel, because a lot of your life is careful curation of your image, self-presentation, um, advertising, and you yourself with a medium, and I understand that a bit because I used to be a um, a dancer and a dance teacher. Mm -hmm. So I'm also accustomed to this kind of, this sense of performance um, and what you're selling is yourself. Um, do you ever feel a little bit alienated? Does that ever make you feel a bit odd? Or do you feel that you can... Um, you can be yourself when you are making those videos and, and photos, that it's an aspect of your of yourself. It's part of your self-expression. It's a little bit of both. Uh, that's a really good question, by the way. Uh, I, I feel a desire to be as holistically vulnerable as possible. Like, it feels good for me to be, like, genuine and direct and open. And that's sort of, like, one force coming out of me. And then a different force is something like, I know that me being genuine and open and, and vulnerable does not make me 
as much money as if I change some things about me. Um, and so that's like a different one. And then there's a lot of what you see is like sort of this meeting in the middle or like the tension between the two. And uh, I feel like relatively comfortable with it overall. Like I don't feel like um, I'm at odds with myself or anything. It is a little strange though. You you got it really on point. It is very weird to have to be careful about the kinds of things that I say. Like I'm not like, for example, uh, what I'm like, this podcast is v- vulnerable in the sense that I'm talking very openly about um, maybe some things that wouldn't be very flattering about the way that I view sex work or like sometimes I have resentment towards men or objectifying and like, or maybe I'm like pretending to be pleasured when I'm not actually. And this is extremely bad for my marketing. Like if I would not ever say this as an escort, uh, that would just be like terrible. Um, but I, I'm saying this now and I know that other people can access this. And so this is sort of like a middle ground. Like I'm not like widely broadcasting this sort of thing on um, my sex work media, but it is accessible for people who really want to dig and find out. And I trust that that it's going to be okay in the long run. So I often like do things like this that might be damaging for my income, but still is expressive. And I try and find this happy medium where I get to to do that without actually uh, like hurting my uh, chances of retirement too badly. Um, but it is weird, and and I often wish I didn't have to do this. Like I fantasize about a world where I can be a hundred percent vulnerable and not have this be punished, not, not punish my wallet really. Um, but I'm not there yet. So you talked about, um, retirement. How do you envisage the future? So how long are, how long are women usually able to do this kind of work and how long do you see yourself doing it? And, um, I gather, so from your bar pod, interview with Jesse Single and Katie Herzog. I heard you say that you were you were planning to save a certain sum. I think it was a million dollars or two million dollars or something, so that you had that lump sum because um people are judgmental and it might affect your future prospect of kind of an ordinary quote unquote job uh if employers know that you um did sex work previously. Um and that seems like a perfectly fair, a perfectly good strategy. So could you say a little bit about how you see the the future for yourself? Yeah, I think it is makes me less employable, my current job. I also kind of don't want to be employed ever again. Uh, I don't do well working under a boss. I have mm. like a, I never like, I never like went to normal school really. And I was homeschooled. And I very rarely had to actually be in situations that most people are trained for, which is like perform very concrete tasks on time, uh, sometimes of your own initiative. And so I am awful at that. Um, and I think I would likely not even be good at a job if I were employed for it. I do much better with projects that I am working on. Like if I am control of something and I become obsessed with it, then it, I become extremely productive and I do it very well. Uh, so that seems like really my only future. But I am afraid. I'm afraid of aging and making less money. 
Um, but there are people who are doing well, like Miss Poindexter. She just had an article go viral. I've, I've been following her for a long time. And she gave me a lot of great advice when I was first starting and helped. Um, she was somebody I look up to. She's in her like mid mid forties, I think, and she has kids. And she the article that just went viral. She got her her kids got kicked out of Catholic school because um, people found out that she did OnlyFans. And uh, really, that article probably made her a ton of money by this point because so many people have seen it. Um, but she's doing super well. She makes one hundred and fifty grand a month right now, uh, probably more since that article. And she's in her mid forties, so I'm hoping that I have a lot of time before I have to run out. But I th- I'm more concerned actually about burnout. Uh, once I after I figure out how to do a project, uh, then I get bored of it. I want to just keep figuring out how to do more projects. And once it turns from figuring it out into maintenance, then I really drop the ball on that. Which is what kind of what's happening to me right now with OnlyFans. Like I figured out how to do it, and now I'm kind of bored. I want to go figure something else out. Um, but yeah, it's scary. I would love to retire and not have to worry about that. Isn't that everybody's dream, huh? Yeah, definitely. Do you have plans for when you retire? So what? Um, imagine that now you have enough money and you definitely don't need to do uh, OnlyFans anymore or any or sex work or any kind of work. Um, what would you do? I would like to write a book. I mean, I am currently working on writing a book. It's uh, slow going, but actually kind of steady, believe it or not. Um, and I want to make and live on a commune. Um, isn't that like the, 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 a lot of people's dream is to get a plot of land and build some stuff and live on it with friends. And I've been really eyeing that possibility for a very long time. And I think it's starting to get to the point where that might actually happen in the next, uh, two years. Um, making very slow, uh, steps towards towards that so yeah commune basically wonderful are you still writing the book on enlightenment on on not um when i say enlightenment on this podcast people usually understand me to mean the 17th and 18th century group of thinkers but you mean enlightenment in in more of a i mean now enlightenment in more of the buddhist sense um are you still writing a book on that yeah um i I'm likely going to incorporate a lot of that into the book that I'm currently writing. Yeah, right Right now the book that I'm working on is a memoir um, also combined with essays, basically just a much longer version of my blog um, because I had some publishers being like, can you just write a bigger version of your blog? So that's mostly what I'm working on and it's going to incorporate a lot about, um, yeah, the Buddhist form of enlightenment. Well, please hit me up if you need an editor um, <laughs> because that's what I do. Um, oh. And it sounds yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I might at some point. Yes, please do. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wish I'd asked you? Or anything that you would like to have had an opportunity to say that I haven't given you the opportunity to say? I, I don't think so. I don't have anything come to mind. You're pretty thorough in the questions about sex work. Well, thank you so much, um, Ayla, for coming on my podcast. Uh, you've been a really thoughtful guest. and. Um, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I, I like the energy that we've created in the studio tonight. Me too. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. 
Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.